welcome to day 365, the final day of Journey Through Scripture. Thank you so much for being with me on this adventure. Um, I am very grateful that the Lord has used this in your life and that you have found value in uh, what I have created here, or perhaps better, I should say, what he has created through me. I want to give a special shout out to those who have uh, supported me in various ways, whether financially through Kofi, whether through encouraging texts and emails, or whether through just, you know, telling friends and spreading the word about Journey Through Scripture. And uh, I hope that uh, you who have found value in this uh, would continue uh, to spread the word about it, that other people might be blessed as um, I'm, I'm grateful to say as you have been. Some of you may have noticed that the quality of the audio increased substantially, probably about halfway through, and um, though they've never asked for recognition, um, I want to say thank you to my mother and my father-in-law, Janice and Mike Anderson, who actually um, got me some nice equipment uh, to record on. So I'm particularly thankful for my audiophile father-in-law, <laughs> and um I want to give a special thanks to someone who's been working behind the scenes extremely diligently um, during the whole two years that it took me to record these. And that is the person who is the greatest blessing in my life, aside from the Lord Jesus, this side of the new heaven and the new earth, my wife, Jamie. We've got a pretty crazy crew of kids who could be kind of loud and for so many of these episodes, she'd be the one upstairs keeping them quiet while daddy's doing his recordings. And I know that that's not easy. And so, honey, thank you. I know we just read uh, Proverbs 31 and we finished that yesterday. And it's not without reason that at various points in our marriage, I have referred to her as P31. She was especially a blessing to me during these final few weeks when the surplus number of recorded episodes that I had had dwindled down to virtually nothing, and I basically had just enough so that I wouldn't have to work on Christmas, and I was really having to to bang these last few weeks out. So, honey, thank you for giving me the freedom and support uh, to uh, do what I needed to do, and uh, I couldn't have done it without you. So, sweetheart, thank you. Okay, so today we are going to be in Nehemiah chapter 13, Psalm 150, and Revelation chapter 22. Okay, Nehemiah chapter 13. Yesterday in the book of Nehemiah, we basically saw everything get set up so that the temple work could run and continue to run and everyone who needed it could have the support that they need um, and that everything would be supplied for the worship of God in Jerusalem. Today, we see them uh, continuing with the concern of uh, keeping the community pure and really trying not to make the mistakes of the past. At least we see that while Nehemiah is still with them and they still have this godly and wise leader. It says that on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. The text that this is referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses 3 through 5, and the uh, reasoning given uh, more or less matches what we find there as well. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, that is, 
hospitality, um, welcoming them into the land, but instead they opposed them and they hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. So this is the Balaam episode back in Numbers 22 through 24. And as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from all Israel, those of foreign descent. So a couple things noteworthy here. Um, so it is interesting that Deuteronomy includes Ammon in this because the events surrounding Balaam um, seem to have been instigated, at least in the telling of it in numbers, only by the Moabites. Um, but Deuteronomy, which you know, know knows a lot more about the events than we do, um, does include Ammonite involvement, and so I think we we just want to say that um, you know there, that's just not explicitly mentioned in Numbers, um, but there's no reason to think that that would be improbable or anything. Uh, at, at junctures like this, I do want to emphasize that it really does appear that this is speaking of non-converted Ammonites and Moabites being part of the assembly of of Israel. The glaring example, uh, like exception of this, would be the inclusion of of Ruth into the not only the the people of Israel, not only the assembly of Israel, but into the line of David. Notice here too, though, that the uh, that the law of Deuteronomy twenty three is given application beyond what it explicitly says. Like it says that it's Ammon and Moab who are to be excluded, whereas the uh, Nehemiah and friends, right, separate from Israel all of those of foreign descent. And so you really start to see this, um, as we've kind of been seeing, right, uh, this increased uh, concern for purity, for keeping the nation uh, unaffected by sin and influences that led them astray in the past. Um, And we'll continue to see that now in some of the things that happen. So, it tells us that uh, Eliashiv, the, the priest, and this is going to be the first problem that crops up here in the last chapter of Nehemiah. Um, it tells us that Eliashiv, the priest, whom I referred to yesterday as a third-generation priest, um, who was uh, appointed over the chambers of the house of God, that's, that is indeed what the, the high priest does, uh, who was related to Tovia, prepared for Tovia a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, okay? So speaking of these chambers, these are the storerooms apparently yesterday that we read about in 1244 where you put all the stuff that's been contributed, remember, and they were purifying it as they were receiving it. But now, do we remember who Tovia is? Well, Tovia is one of Sanbalat's sidekicks, and he is an Ammonite. So just um, on the heels of them applying Deuteronomy 23. Here now we have the high priest basically welcoming Tovia in and giving him this very prominent position in the mechanisms of the of the temple. And and not only had had is Tovia an, an Ammonite, but he's also um, been very opposed, like he's he, to to what to what uh, God has been doing in Jerusalem. So uh, we have every reason to kind of view him with a little bit of suspicion. And indeed, um, the Ammonites have caused trouble um, for Israel since the exile. I think it's important to realize that as well, that this is not just an arbitrary thing. Like, they've seen the problems that they've made. Back in Jeremiah 41, which gives us 
extra details surrounding the assassination of the governor Gedaliah, who was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar after the after Jerusalem had been destroyed. The man who assassinated um, uh, Gedaliah, Ishmael, son of Nethaniah, um, is helped by the Ammonites. So this is known to be a hostile group, and this is known to be a, a, a hostile guy. And I noted back in uh, Nehemiah 6.18 that Tovia is said to be related, um, not blood-related, but through marriage in two different ways to various Israelites, including uh, the priestly family of Meshulam. So um, here now we see we find that Eliashiv is also uh, related to him. And so this kind of maybe a family nepotism sort of thing is going on here. And he is given this chamber, which is was previously used for uh, some important stuff for the running of the temple, the grain offering, frankincense, vessels, tithes of grain, wine, and oil. And so the stuff uh, is presumably removed from there. And he's given this as, I don't know, a residence or some kind of a place for him to do whatever it was he was going to do. And uh, Nehemiah... Uh, writing in the first person in verse 6, notes, I was not in Jerusalem at this time, for in this 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. Um, we're, we, we saw this back in 514. Um, so this, and I noted that Nehemiah has apparently at least two visits to Jerusalem. So this is when he's gone back to the king. And then he asks leave of the king to come back to Jerusalem and he gets back and he discovers the evil that Eliashiv had done for Tovia, preparing him a chamber in the in the courts of the house of God. And Nehemiah is not very happy about this. He's very angry. And he says, I threw all the household furniture of Tovia out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chambers, right? So they had to be purified again. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So this is what this is for. It's not for this Ammonite guy to set up shop. All right, and then we see the second problem that the community is, uh, is, is dealing with. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, um, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field, right? So they're supposed to be supported through tithes and stuff like that. Um, but they weren't, and now they have to seek a living elsewhere. And that's going to give a lot. I mean, they're already kind of short on Levites, as we noted yesterday. Remember the ones um, who were kind of shared between Judah and Benjamin. Uh, but obviously this is going to give the temple a lot less attention. And so you're kind of like walking into neglect of the temple. If the Levites are having to work the fields and stuff to, to, to support their families, so I confronted the officials, why is the house of God forsaken? I gathered them together, set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, oil into the storehouses. So he corrects this. And then he appoints a couple trustworthy people um, to, uh, to oversee this. They were considered reliable in verse 13, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. And then Nehemiah, in, in very characteristic style, breaks the fourth wall again and prays as part of his narrative text, remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Okay, and now in verse 15, we see the third problem. Uh, in those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. So here is Nehemiah 
walking around. He's dealt with this issue with the tides. He's dealt with the issue with Tovia. And now he's there um, on the Sabbath and he sees people uh, doing work, right? They're treading wine presses. They're bringing in heaps of grain. They're loading them on donkeys, wine, grapes, figs, all kinds of loads, bringing them into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And you might remember back in chapter 10, verse 31, this was a concern that people of the land had been doing this in Jerusalem, and they didn't tolerate it then. And now you actually have Judeans doing this, taking the opportunity to do some trading and make some money on the Sabbath. That's not what the Sabbath is for, of course. And there are also Tyrians there. That would be people from the city of Tyre. And remember, those Phoenicians love their boats and everything. And so they're bringing in fish and all kinds of goods and selling them on the Sabbath as well. In Jerusalem itself, it says at the verse at, at verse 16, um, then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster on us in this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And in response to this, as soon as it begins to grow dark on the, on the day before the Sabbath, he commands that the doors be shut and that the gates be shut and that they remain shut until after the Sabbath is over. So nobody comes in, nobody comes out on the Sabbath. And he takes some of his personal servants, Nehemiah does, and he stations them at the gate, making sure that none of these shenanigans are happening. And um, the merchants start to come up to Jerusalem on various Sabbaths, and um, only once or twice, it notes, right? But And Nehemiah comes out to them, and he's like, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so, again, I will lay hands on you. So He's totally prepared to lay down fisticuffs if necessary. From that time on, they did not come in on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. And then once again, he turns to God in the midst of his narration. Remember this also in my favor, O God, and I will and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. And then finally, the fourth problem he's got to deal with is something that uh, is, is not a first, right? This was a big deal in Ezra chapter 9, and this was something they committed themselves to in the covenant in Nehemiah 10.30, and this is the issue of intermarriage. And in this case, it is Jews who had married women of Ashdod, so the, the Philistine city, as well as Ammon and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people, which indicates that, you know, not only are they married, but they're they're culturally assimilating, that this is a, that there's more influence being exerted in these families from the Philistine, Ammonite, and Moabite lineage than there is from the Judean lineage. So this is not a good situation. And um, he confronted them cursed them and as i said he he's he he when he made the threat in verse 21 about uh, the guy, the people coming outside the city on the sabbath now he actually does get physical he says he cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair and he made them take an oath in the name of god 
you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Again, this was part of the covenant renewal that they had made, and he's recommitting them to that. And he has a very interesting example here. He says, think about Solomon, right? He was this great king. There was no king like him, but did not he sin on account of such women? He was beloved by God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And finally, Nehemiah finds an issue with one particular uh, individual, um, and this is one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashiv. So this would be a grandson of Eliashiv, the high priest. So someone in the high priestly um, um, family and perhaps in line to be the high priest one day himself. And he finds out that he is the son-in-law of Sanballat. So so not only has Tovia kind of like weaseled his way in that way, but now Sanballat has as well. And he says, therefore, I chased him from me, which probably indicates that Nehemiah makes sure that this guy is actually never going to serve as a priest. It's important to realize that Leviticus 21, uh, 14 um, insists that any priest is married to a virgin of his people, cannot be married to the daughter of a foreigner a non-Israelite. And then Nehemiah sum- summarizes, thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and the Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times. Remember, there's that tamid that's supposed to be kept continually burning, and for the first fruits. And it ends, remember me, O my God, for good. So one, Nehemiah gets one last uh, instance of that in at the end of the book. Um, you can really see how these concerns sowed the seeds of the religious attitudes that we see later in New Testament times. Um, this idea that they, that the people, um, are in need of religiously zealous individuals to keep everyone in line and, um, kind of the, even the beginning of like drawing a fence around the, the law, um, you've may have heard that, right? That a lot of the uh, regulations that people like the Pharisees insisted upon went beyond what the commandments of God actually said, just to make sure that nobody gets close to compromising. Um, And you see, you could see that here, right? We saw that with the uh, no Ammonite or Moabite gets turned into no foreign people whatsoever. And even with some of this Sabbath stuff, right? Like, remember, the the Sabbath laws, as I often note, that are actually in the Bible are kind of ambiguous. And the people of Israel who are under the covenant of Moses are not to do any work. Well, does that include then foreign people being in the land and being allowed to sell things to them on the Sabbath? I mean, one could make an argument that that enables them to not have to work on the Sabbath. Um as I indicated the other day, that the Sabbath requires an element of trust, and so that may have been flying in the face of the spirit of the law of the Sabbath. And I'm not saying that these, that the things that they're instituting here are wrong, but you can see how they're starting to get expanded. And so it's not surprising that a couple hundred years of this down the line, and you get the religion of the Jewish establishment that Jesus and the apostles encounter. And the last thing I want to say is that 
one gets the impression by the end of the book of Nehemiah that the relatively good situation they are in um, with regard to the temple being rebuilt and operative again and the people of Judah and Benjamin living in the land again, okay, that situation is maintaining, but it's hanging by a thin thread. And as soon as Nehemiah takes his eyes off of stuff, right, everything starts to go a little bit a little bit south. One does not get the impression at the end of this book that um, the people are 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 ready to experience these grand blessings that the prophets had told them about. Right? One get rather gets the impression that they're falling into the same problems that their forefathers did, which again calls for the need of this new covenant that is based on forgiveness, that is. Uh, based on the giving of the Spirit, and that is based on God doing a radical work in people's hearts to transform them into people who actually delight to do the law of God. And we probably also shouldn't forget the dimension of the nations coming, right? Some of the stuff we were looking at yesterday when we were considering Revelation 21 and like Isaiah 40, for example. Uh, that the nations come and essentially become worshipers of the Lord, right? What we see fulfilled in the gospel. Um, but here, the nations are only ever a threat. You do not have them coming and saying, oh, can, can we be a part of this? Can we learn from you? Can we worship God in spirit and truth? No, it's basically like, hey, why don't you let us in and, you know, uh, chill out with a lot of this stuff that you're doing and, and compromise a lot of your your values and a lot of the things that are part of your covenant, right? Like, their, their relationship with the nations around them is not a positive one. And it just kind of puts us in this place of anticipation that we are ready for God to step in and to do something that obviously Israel is not go- going to be able to do on her own. And that's where it kind of leaves us when we come to the New Testament and we find the Messiah, the son of David, being born in the town of Bethlehem, and later appearing in Galilee, announcing repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. All right, let's go now to Psalm 150. So this is the final hallelujah psalm, and as I noted that these last five hallelujah psalms all begin and end with hallelujah, praise Yahweh. And this one is no exception except it does it in every single line. So praise Yahweh, praise him in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens, praise him for his mighty deeds, praise him according to his excellent greatness, praise him with trumpet sound, with lute and harp, with tambourine and dance, with strings and pipes, sounding cymbals, loud crashing cymbals, right? Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. And then uh, the first line of verse six gets a little creative and puts it at the end of the line. Let everything that has breath praise Yahweh. And indeed, that is something that we also see fulfilled in Revelation when in chapter five, verses 13 and 14, the lamb has stepped forward to take the the scroll and to break its seals. And he says, and I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Who is it that brings about everything that has breath praising Yahweh? It is Jesus. And then the Psalms end very fittingly 
praise Yahweh. Okay, let's go now to Revelation chapter 22. Okay, so yesterday we uh, were introduced to the new heavens and the new earth. And here, kind of continuing that vision, we're told in verse 1 that the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That, of course, is kind of the centerpiece of Ezekiel's vision of the new temple in chapter 47, verses 1 through 12 of his book. Remember where he sees the water coming out from the threshold and then filling the land. And he says that it is bright as crystal uh, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit in each month. These, th- these things are also drawn from that vision as well, right? Where in uh, verse 12 of Ezekiel 47, uh, the trees are bearing fresh fruit every month. Um, and it says the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Um, in uh, Also in verse 12 uh, of Ezekiel 47, the leaves of those trees are for healing. But notice that things here are are amped up. They're they're even better, uh, just like we noted yesterday with the 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 vision of the new Jerusalem, right? Very much corresponding to Ezekiel's, but it's better in that it doesn't need a temple because the Lord God and the Lamb is the temple, and the whole thing is portrayed as this giant holy of holies, right? Well, here you see that it's not just any old tree, but this is a tree we've seen before. This is the tree of life. This is the tree of life that mankind, ever since the Garden of Eden, has been restricted from. And if you could think back to some of the temple imagery, right, this is apparently what the, the menorah uh, kind of stands for in there, that there, that, that is, um, you know, representing the, the scenario, the situation that was in Eden. Um, and here we find in this city, the tree of life. And not only that, but uh, the leaves, which are for healing. Okay, Ezekiel just stops at that, but John goes further. He says the healing of the nations. So here, once again, we have it expanded not only to bless the people of Israel, but to the nations who have come to be part of the one people of God. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. Um, again, this is something we've seen a bunch of times in Revelation. Um, negatively, okay, the harlot's name, remember, was written on her forehead. That is uh, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of the earth's ab- abominations. And then, of course, the mark of the beast, that is on the foreheads of those who follow the beast in Revelation thirteen sixteen, But... As for the godly, as for those who know the Lord, the 144,000 in 4.1 have the Lamb's name and his Father's name on their foreheads. And if you go back a little further to 7 verse 3, the servants of God bear his name on their foreheads. This shows ownership. This shows who they are. This shows whom they belong to. And it says, night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. We saw this yesterday in 2123, and they will reign forever and ever. 
something that has been said of the people of God also in chapter 5, verse 10, and then most recently in the, uh, in the millennium in chapter 20, verse 4. And then in verse 6, it says, He said to me, These words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Notice that this uh, forms somewhat of an inclusio of the entire book of Revelation, which begins how? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants the things that must soon take place. And then Jesus goes and makes it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Um, And um, what is it that is soon to take place? Behold, I am coming soon. That's what's soon to take place that Jesus is coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the word of the prophecy of this book. Again, hearkening back to the very introduction, which tells us blessed are those who read aloud the the words of this prophecy, blessed are those who hear them, and blessed are those who keep them. And then in verse 8, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. This is now the second time that John has done this, that he is apparently so blown away, so overwhelmed that he bows down and prostrates himself before the one who is showing it to him. But the angel tells him, you know, I am a fellow servant with you, which is pretty wild, right? With that, those who share the testimony of Jesus, that the angels are fellow servants alongside of us. And that indeed is how John was introduced back in chapter one, verse two, that God, Jesus made this revelation known by sending his angel to his servant, John. So here we are again with lots of things forming this inclusio of the whole book. And he tells John, he says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, okay? Because people need to know it, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, let the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy, okay? That is a reality in this world until Jesus does come again. And for those of us who are troubled by these things, uh, we are given the assurance through the book of Revelation that that is not how things will always be. And then Jesus speaking here, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And then this is extraordinarily interesting. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, who is it that has spoken this way so far in Revelation? Who is the Alpha and the Omega in chapter 1, verse 8? Who's the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end in chapter 21, verse 6? The Father is. This, I think, is one of the subtle um, many ways that the book of Revelation points to the fact that the Lord Jesus indeed shares in the identity of God himself. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so that they have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Now, how do we wash our robes? 
Well, remember back in chapter 7 when we saw the great multitude, those coming out of the great tribulation, uh, in verse 14, their robes were white because they had washed them in the blood of the Lamb. And that's what gives us the right to eat of the tree of life, not because of what we do, but because of what Jesus has done. Outside, it says, are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They're not inside the kingdom. They're not inside the new Jerusalem. I, Jesus, verse 16 says, echoing chapter 1, verse 1, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things. For the churches, this is for our good. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star, right? He is the one who signals, whose coming signals the end of the night. And then the Spirit and the bride say, come. So both the Holy Spirit and us, the church, the bride of Christ, working together, say to this world, in light of all these things, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty Come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price, that that river that flows down the center of the city. We take it, and we take it without price because of the one who has paid the price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy— God will take his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And I think it's important to acknowledge here that this is technically referring to the book of Revelation. That's not to say that it's okay to take away from uh, or add to any other scriptures, but this warning here is, uh, is given to those who would tamper with the words of the book of Revelation. And finally... He who testifies to these things, Jesus, Jesus is the one who testifies, says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Erhu kuri iesu. And then finally, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. What a way to finish our year together. As always, I thank you for being with me. And as I have said to you so many times before, and now say to you one last time, keep reading scripture, take care, and bye-bye.